Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Thank you so much for joining me on episode 70. I am sitting here with my good friend and sister and fellow Redemption Parker member, Andy Davidson. And I wanted to bring Andy on the show today because she and her husband served for a time in Afghanistan. And they have um, lots of lasting relationships and memories, obviously, and communication with the culture and country of Afghanistan. And I thought it would be really helpful to just take some time this morning to ask some questions of Andy here about about um, her heart for the Afghan people, God's heart for the Afghan people, what life was like back then, what life is like right now, what she's hearing um, from inside the country, just so that she might help open your eyes and mine to the reality of life there. Um, So Andy, thank you for coming on. I am so appreciative that you would take some time this morning to chat with my listeners. Um, My prayer is that God will use this conversation for um, just for all of us to have our eyes open to what he's doing around the world. So thanks for taking this moment to to just share with us. Yes, thank you for having me. So let's just start our conversation off first by hearing from you about what took you to Afghanistan. What was it like for you and your husband, you know, paint a picture for us of what what was going on globally, what was going on for you in your lives, in your marriage, in your church, like what, what was that process? What, what took you there? Right. Um, well, looking back, um, you know, from the very beginning, it kind of started, um, growing up in a Christian family where my dad had a real heart for missions and he ran a missionary organization out of our church. And so that was a big part of my teen years, um, of just watching the value of bringing the gospel overseas. And my husband and I, one of the first things we did was go on a trip that my, with this organization together in high school. So missions and bringing the gospel overseas was something, was kind of an adventure that knit our hearts together mm. and a big part of our early dating years and engaged years. So we got married. We spent some time overseas after um, we got married and then had settled back down in Durango is where we were living. And uh, Scott was a children's pastor at a church down in Durango. And this church was also really outreach oriented. So we would have these missions conferences every year. And we had no expectation to go overseas again. We kind of had felt like, oh, we spent a year overseas before we had children and that was our time. (laughs) And we came back to small town. He's a pastor in this church. We had two children, a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And um, like I said, had no expectation, but we were just going to the missions conference. I think it was a June or a July. This was actually in 2002. So we head to this missions conference and um, a speaker had shared an opportunity. They had explained what was going on in the church in Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban. And he explained that there was an interim government that was opening up the doors for non-government organizations to be set up. And he said, we think we only have a six-month window to get these NGOs set up, but we need a team of people who are willing to go and help us set up an educational non-government organization that will be a means by which to bring the gospel. And I don't know what, I mean, obviously it was just the Holy Spirit because my husband, we walked out of that session and Scott was just like, huh, where do you want to go for lunch? And it was one of those moments in my life that I just, I couldn't even think, I couldn't talk Mm. because I just sensed the Holy Spirit's calling Mm. to say, you should do this. You should set up this NGO. You should go talk to that speaker. And I had said to my husband, I 
I know this sounds crazy, but I feel like we should go ask some questions. And he looked at me like, are you insane? <laughs> and um, long story short, God just opened up our hearts to it. We went back to our church. We shared with our pastor, who was our mentor. And right away, he's like, you know what? We'll keep you on staff. We'll pay your, we'll mm-hmm. still pay your salary. We'll send you guys to Afghanistan. Yeah. And it just, it was, it was surreal at the time, but it was one of those times that you just know God's in it. And so it feels so peaceful, even though the circumstances bringing two toddlers to Afghanistan in 2002 seems like a crazy, insane thing to do. But um, within two or three months, we had all our support raised and we had plane tickets for September of 2002 to move to Kabul wow. with this organization. Wow. So it happened pretty fast. So everybody that's listening knows September of 2002 is one year after September of 2001. Yes. What were your parents saying? What, yes. what were your friends saying? I um, can imagine you had some pushback. Yes. Um, well, my parents were super excited. They're very, <laughs> you know, they're big risk takers and, you know, and so they thought it was wonderful. Um, Scott's mom wasn't so excited. Yeah. She was pretty um, upset that we would bring her grandchildren to a war-torn country. Um, there was even some people in our church that were... Um, questioning whether this was a responsible, whether we were really hearing God's voice, whether this was really God who wanted us to do this. And, you know, I'll never forget our pastor's wife actually got in front of the church and she said, I've heard some rumblings. I know that some of you are really doubting whether this is God's will for Scott and Andy and the children. But she gave this really powerful exhortation. She reminded them that her exact words were, the safest place for you and your children is in the center of God's will. Mm -hmm. And she said, we as their leaders believe this is God's will. We are sending them with our blessing. We're financially supporting them. They will be safer in Kabul with their children than they would have been staying here and disobeying God. And that just spoke to my heart. It was a, um, it just bolstered my faith. Even in times when we were there and I felt a little unsafe, those words would come through my mind. Safest place for me and my children is mm. in the center of God's will. And that really bolstered our faith. So um, we actually, our plane ticket was scheduled to land on September 11, mm. 2002. And our team leaders, when he found that out, he asked us to reschedule. Whoa. So we canceled that ticket. I think we landed, I don't know, maybe September 25th or something like oh, that. Oh, interesting. He just felt like, you know, let's not push this. Mm. That doesn't sound very responsible. Let's push you off a couple of weeks. So it was late September, I believe of 2002 when we landed. Wow. So help us visualize what it was like when you got there. What was life on the ground like in Afghanistan? Mm -hmm. Um, Anything that comes to mind? I mean, it's just so interesting to me because it's such a foreign place for us. So, you know, your housing, your shopping, your food, your kids, like what what was it like? Well, um, because it was so time sensitive that we got over there because we believed we had only had this six month window to form this non-government organization. Normally you don't do this. We had a team of probably 15 to 20 of us. And normally you would meet stateside, you would build relationship, you would come up with your strategies, you'd arrange housing, and then everybody would go over together. Well, we didn't have that benefit because of the nature of the urgency of it. So, um, our team leaders who also had three children, We were the only two families on the team, and then there was a lot of singles on the team. And the team leaders had some delays in raising funds and getting moved over there, so they actually didn't come till late October. Um, So when we landed, there was, I believe, three singles that had already got there, just because it was easier for them to mobilize and get over there fast than families. And um, thankfully, they had already secured a house. So we were, that was nice that we could, and there was these three singles that lived with us. Um, And... So we landed, we come to this house. The house was actually 
probably twice as big as our house in the States. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a large house. I mean, it wasn't nearly as comfortable. Mm-hmm. It didn't have, you know, central heat or um, anything like that. It was quite modest by those means. But um, so we landed in late September and Afghanistan has a similar climate to um, Colorado. So the weather was still nice. By October, November, we quickly decided, realized that not having a thermostat on the wall was very difficult. <laughs> and just... <laughs> Just finding a way, I would say our first two months, and this was quite discouraging because we, you know, we're eager, we want to get there and share the gospel and form this NGO and start the work of the ministry, but we spent about two months figuring out how to survive. How do we heat the house? (laughs) How do we purchase groceries? Where do we purchase groceries? Actually, our well ran dry about three weeks after we got there. Mm. So here we are, and it's starting, the weather's turning cold. It's mid-October. We're carrying our water from a block down the street at the public little um, pump. We have one child in diapers. They have no disposable diapers there, so we're using cloth diapers. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, scrubbing cloth diapers with cold water that you carried down the street and trying to figure out how to start a fire in these teeny little, like, pop can, like, small tin, you know, fireplaces that they have. And yet, it was quite a big house, so you heat just one room, mm-hmm. and the rest of the house is quite cold. But mm-hmm. um, those were some of the challenges to when you feel like, we came here for these big, noble reasons, yeah. and we can barely even stay warm and get enough water. Um, thankfully, we are able to fix the water problem within a few weeks, so we didn't do that long term. Um, and at that point, electricity was kind of in and out. There wasn't constant electricity. They have hydroelectric power, and there had been kind of a drought. And so that really affects the amount of electricity. So it's unpredictable. We probably had it 48 hours every week, I would say, but you never know. As soon as the lights come on, you... 48 hours a week. You have 48 hours a week, two, probably. Oh yes, my goodness. Maybe two days a week, two oh to three days gosh. a week. And it comes and goes. And so, you know, your laptop battery dies and you just wait and wait. And as soon as the lights turn on, you quick plug in all your rechargeable mm. batteries. And um, so, yeah, that I felt like we had stepped back in time, mm-hmm. you know, in many ways. Um, for those first few weeks. But thankfully, our our team leaders arrived probably mid-October, and that's where we felt like, okay, we're all here together. We have a strategy. We kind of have a vision for our ministry. And um, But I'll be honest, as a mom, I would say those, you know, November and December were probably the two darkest months of my life. Wow. Like, um, God, I I had this faith that brought me over there and I was so excited to be there. But then the reality of the difficulty of living there and the spiritual oppression, I didn't prepare well for that. Mm. Um, And yet that's a big part of my testimony of God just really changing my heart and helping me realize the ways I wasn't depending on Him. And um, so, of course, we weren't there for us to be ministered to, but as is usually in the kingdom of God, God has a plan in that. And so there was something really neat built between in our marriage of depending on each other and my understanding of God's unconditional acceptance and this idea of performance-based love versus Mm. unconditional regard and love that he offers that was really powerful during that time. So, um, but our true ministry of what we intended to do probably started about December or January. Wow. Well, I I know that there are a number of missionaries overseas that listen to this podcast, so I'm sure they love hearing, you know, this anecdote from you because that does describe life for many. Even if you move to a developed country, you have to figure so much out when you first right. get there. And there is a lot about missions that can be really deflating, um, but the Lord does shape us and mold us and form us. And I love your testimony 
that God's um, unconditional love for you really ministered to you in that season and changed the way you viewed him and the the way your faith carried out. Yeah, I remember wanting, you know, we would send these monthly reports back to people and I would want to tell them some great story yeah. about how I <laughs> shared my faith with an Afghan woman and she turned to the Lord and instead we're like, this week we figured out how to get well water. <laughs> And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, I hope we're not wasting people's resources yes. being here. Yes. So there are those challenges that That's I did not real. expect. It mm-hmm. Is. Mm-hmm. So um, I know that when you were there, you made deep and obviously lasting lifetime friendships because so many of those people are still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know this is a very big question because Afghanistan is a large country with numerous regions and numerous people with various experiences. But could you, again, admitting that these are generalizations, maybe take us through sort of what maybe life was like for your Afghan friends when you were there and how it changed? What did you see? And I know you weren't there for the last 20 years, but what? how did life change for them throughout the time of um, you know, the U.S. forces being there, NATO forces being in the country, and then what you're hearing from them now? So yeah, the huge question, right, long right. answer, I yes. realize, but maybe take it in some parts, you know, just sort of the evolution. So for like, for you and me, we're in our forties, our peers in Afghanistan, they've had their whole adult life shaped by these movements of um, geopolitical forces. What has that looked like? Yeah, that is a big question. Um, you know, and one of the objectives of our ministry was to work with um, kindergarten teachers that had been taken out of the workforce under the Taliban and were now given opportunity to get back in their um, classrooms. And so we were doing these teacher trainings for kindergarten teachers. So we worked with a lot of women who had obviously been severely oppressed under those five, six years of Taliban reign and were super excited to just be part of society again. Wow. <laughs> they were so excited. My um, One of our closest friends was a language teacher, and um, she had been studying English in secret for years and years and years. And the fact that she could now get a job working as an English teacher and coming into our home and tutoring our children and just seeing the excitement in her. And she actually had come from um, more of a liberal family that really blessed her in doing that. Scott's um, interpreter. He came from a very, very conservative Pashtu family where even though the Taliban was no longer um, ruling, they still had these beliefs about women not being out in society without a male escort. And and so getting to know my language teacher versus mm. his language teacher mm. and the, you know, we all know that Afghanistan is a very diverse tribal culture with these Tajiks and Pashtus and Mm -hmm. different, you know, huge spread of their convictions. But um, my language teacher, one thing I thought was really interesting, her sisters um, went to university and she was very, they were very excited to do that. But I noticed whenever I saw them, um, my friend did not wear the full burqa, but her sisters wore the Hmm. full burqa every time they went out in public. And I thought to myself, like, why would you do that? The Taliban isn't here anymore. Nobody's making you do this Hmm. anymore. Why don't you? And I finally got the courage to ask them one day, like, so you don't have to do that. Like, why are you choosing to do that? And they said, oh, the burqa gives us so much freedom. And, you know, from a Western perspective, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, okay, that makes no sense. Explain more. And they said, you know, 
we finally get to get an education. We get to go shopping by ourselves. And all it would take is one or two false accusations of, and her example was flirting with the guy who sells apples or, you know, talking to a man inappropriately on the bus on the way to university. And if I have my burqa on, nobody will ever accuse me of doing anything wrong because Mm -hmm. nobody knows who I am. So my, um, you know, that gives me freedom to get an education. It gives me freedom to go shopping by myself. It gives me freedom to do things I couldn't do last year. Wow. And I love that I don't have to fear these false accusations from an uncle or somebody down the street. And that was just something that I thought, wow, I never would have thought of mm-hmm. it that way. So, um, you know, we were only there in 2002 and 2003. So I can speak, and we were also only in the capital. If we had been in some of the outlying areas, I'm sure our experience would have been very different. In the time we were there, we never experienced any anti-American sentiment. We never experienced, um, we only saw just the, the development and the advance of their freedoms. You know, your question for what has that been like for them now, it's hard for me to, like I said, to speak Beyond, we kept in contact with a lot. And actually, our friend, our Afghan interpreter friend, was able to immigrate to Sweden a couple mm-hmm. years ago. Um, but her family is still remaining there. Her sisters and her brother and her mother are still in Afghanistan. And so, um, well, you know, now I know that their life has changed radically. Mm-hmm. I know that um, most of the friends that we had there were working with either the US government or the NGO community. And so they've lost their jobs. Um, they don't feel safe going out in the streets anymore. Uh, it's a radical, radical change from what they had, the life they'd been living. So they're, are they in hiding? I mean, are they just feel like they have to stay completely underground? Mm-hmm. The, um, there's four families that we're still connected with that we've been trying to help, you know, initially do the, um, SIV special immigration visa process, but that became very clear that that was just too long of a process and wasn't really designed for emergent evacuation. So there's this P2 referral paperwork process. that's a little, um, more quick. So in the last five, six weeks, we've been trying to help these four families. Um, and so we've been in lots of communication with them. Yes, they are staying. They For the first about four weeks, they left their home and they said, we're just, we've scattered ourselves in different homes. We just don't want to be in the homes where our address is associated with. We don't feel safe in our homes. I think some of them have felt more comfortable to return back to their homes, but they don't feel comfortable doing what they did before, going shopping, being mm-hmm. outside. The women are not leaving the home. Only the men are going out to run errands. Um, yeah, so they've lost their jobs. They're very concerned about where their income is going to come from because they were working for organizations that are now evacuated. Mm-hmm. So trying to find a livelihood has been very difficult for them. Um, yeah, their life drastically changed. Wow. And they, I mean... Um, they said, we're just trying to discern, is there a life still here for us in Afghanistan? Is there a livelihood? Can we survive here anymore? If they're, I mean, their first hope is to be able to evacuate, but, um, as the days go by, it seems like that option is growing more unlikely. So I'm just trying to wrap my mind around their reality. Um, so just envisioning our own lives, like we come to a point one day where we wake up and we realize we cannot have the jobs we had. Our addresses are not a safe place for us to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not. There's not necessarily peace outside our homes either. It's not necessarily safe to be out. As women, we can't go to the grocery store. We can't be seen in public. Um, schools are closed. Right. Um, 
food is scarce? Is it? I don't I know. I asked that because we actually have a connection with um, a church leader in Pakistan, mm-hmm. um, in Peshawar, that has offered to get them money. They mm-hmm. said, you know, if they need resources, we have the ability to get them money. And so I had asked that, like, how are you getting food? And um, they said, we do have some family members who feel more comfortable out on the streets that don't have the connections with... If, if you had no connections with the U.S. government or with non-foreign NGOs you're less afraid of the Taliban and you're more likely to feel comfortable doing life as, you know, before. And so they did say that their supplies are being delivered by family members. Um, But they also said that every day we hear gunfire. Every day there's gunfire in our neighborhood. And we had not heard that for years and years and years. And so that was a reality, you know, obviously before... America and other forces came in to drive the Taliban out, but for them to just be in that environment. And of these friends, there's, um, of the 22 friends that we've tried to help with this P2 referral paperwork, 13 of those are children or under 18. And to just think they have no memory of the Taliban. Mm -hmm. They only know stories that they were told. They didn't hear gunfire in the streets for the last 18 years, you know? And so to all of a sudden be in your home and every day hear gunfire, mm. it's just a very unsettling mm-hmm. reality. Whereas their parents probably all too well, that, mm-hmm. that was their childhood. And now their children are experiencing the childhood that they had hoped that would never be repeated. Yeah. So I think that's where a lot of the despair comes from, not to mention having girls under the age of 18 that are unmarried. And as a father, that feeling of what's going to happen to my daughter, mm-hmm. you know, um, cause we know that it's much more dangerous for girls than for young men in Afghanistan right now. Yeah. Yeah. Speak to a little bit, just what you have said, um, which is so helpful, such a helpful perspective that really a, one or two generations now has grown up in peace mm-hmm. and there was relative stability, education, um, no gunshots in the street, you know, in so many ways, not everywhere in Afghanistan, right. but in m- much of it. Um, speak to that reality. Um, you know, before we started recording, you and I were talking a little bit about our friends who have been in the military and feel incredibly discouraged. Um, there's a sense of like, was it all a waste? Right. Right. So speak to that. What, what, what are the, what's, what are the benefits of the last 20 years? Right. Um, give us yeah, some perspective. Yeah. Um, even last night, we had a friend in our home who has been deployed over to Afghanistan multiple times and was just sharing the despair that he and some of his um, acquaintances have felt. And I have another friend who has lost somebody um, in Afghanistan. And there was such a hard time for our military because I had heard a statistic that um, our time in Afghanistan was the only time in U.S. history that we lost more soldiers to suicide than we did to combat. Whoa. The, the epidemic of suicide among our soldiers in Afghanistan was more than any other location. And there's so many reasons you wonder that. Whoa. Like, And that's probably a storm of circumstances that caused that. But I know there's a lot of people that are just left feeling like, wow, did my friend die for nothing? Mm. Did, you know, was that time wasted? And I, I don't have a lot to say in terms of the military piece for, from a civilian perspective and the humanitarian piece. I just, I, the message I hope they hear is that the work that was done for 20 years opened a door and it opened a door to faith-based humanitarian support that was 
absolutely closed before 2001. There were no NGOs. Mm -hmm. There were missionaries, Mm -hmm. and we met some of them that had been there since the 70s and 80s that stayed through all of the time of the Soviet invasion, all through the time of the Taliban, but there was no formal organizations. And when that um, door opened in 2002, I mean, a rush of humanitarian organizations and um, faith-based organizations pretty much had access for two full decades. And that, when you look at it through a biblical lens, that's a lot of seeds, a Mm. lot of gospel seeds planted um, that wouldn't have been planted without. So if that's, you know, to somebody who maybe doesn't have a biblical worldview and they look at our military's involvement there and feel like it was all a waste and a waste of life and a waste of resources. But when you're looking at it through a biblical worldview, um, that military effort is is as if they held the doors open. Mm-hmm. And when those doors were open, seeds of the gospel were able to come in. And two decades of seeds can produce a lot of fruit yeah. in decades to come. And the church, there is, a, you know, there's an estimate. I've heard about 12,000 believers in Afghanistan, national believers. And we have a friend, this friend in Peshawar, who um, has a lot of connections with the church in, in Kabul and throughout Afghanistan. And there's a lot of church leaders, and even workers, you had mentioned this in maybe a previous podcast or an article, that there's a lot who don't want to be evacuated. This is their home. They love this land, and they've poured their life into it. And so that should be a consolation, Mm -hmm. I think, to us as as we're tempted to despair, to just acknowledge that and to see that and to know that we know that that when persecution comes upon a church, it grows, (laughs) you know? And so we've seen that. We've, we had some personal friends that were martyred after we left. And while that's so, you know, sad and despairing, there's also something really beautiful Mm. about just that, um, truth that God gives us that the church is built on the blood of the martyrs. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that would be my message to people who would feel really discouraged about our involvement there is that there was two decades of gospel influence and that's not going to die quickly. Those seeds will bear fruit. Yeah, I love that eternal perspective, and I think it's one we're just not hearing enough right. to be reminded that two generations, you know, depending on how you measure a generation, but fully changed, mm-hmm. very different than they would have been had um, some of the forces of stability and peace yes. not been present. And I did mention a couple episodes back, um, I don't remember the exact numbers now, but just the... Um, infant mortality rate going way down Mm, over the last two decades, life expectancy going way up, Um, you know, the economy doing so much better, so many markers that even from a completely secular perspective have got to be encouraging to anybody um, that life changed drastically, at least for a time. And as you say, um, you know, souls are eternal and humans are made in the image of God. And so even those who do not yet follow Christ, you know, that that is a game changer for a whole country. And um, spiritual fruit oftentimes grows unseen until it's, you know, blossoming on the tree. So um, let us be praying and hoping for that along with the church in Afghanistan. Yeah. Thank you for that perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, let's talk about a little bit how we here in the U.S. can be ministering to Afghans. So you've said you've got these good friends who are still there. Um, there's clearly, I don't know what the numbers are, but I think thousands of Afghan refugees are even coming into Colorado, um, not to mention the rest of the country, but even right here. Um, and I know you're not necessarily an expert on this, but I do know you have been spending endless hours um, seeking 
ways to help Afghans overseas as well as those who are coming here. Right. So can you tell us what you've learned for yeah. the person listening who's like, I just want to do something? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, throughout mid-August is when I was spending a ton of time filing all this paperwork for our friends. And, um, you know, that August 31st deadline was coming quickly. And when that came and went and I thought, oh, I just want to get these 22 people out Mm -hmm. and realize that, wow, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. I started just asking God, like, what could I do? Because that feeling of seeing injustice and feeling completely helpless Mm -hmm. to do something about it is not a good place. It like defiles your conscience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so you feel like, Lord, give me something to do. So I started just doing some research on what's, yeah, you're right. There's about 2000 Afghans that are expected to arrive in Denver in the next six months. Okay. And, um, there are these resettlement agencies. So the way it works is when, you know, they're in Qatar or somewhere waiting right now. And as their paperwork gets approved and they start getting shipped over, there's actually, I learned nine major resettlement agencies that the government like connects these new arrivals with. And it's really encouraging that six of the nine are faith-based. And I love the thought that I just hope that means something to our government, that people of faith are doing something. And so one of those faith-based organizations here in the Denver area is Lutheran Family Services. And they have um, just a really, I started doing some research to think what what options are there, what could be done. And so um, you can look that up. They have Um, numerous ways to get involved from very minor commitment. Like probably the most basic is preparing a meal for a newly arrived family so that when they get in their apartment, there's a fresh meal waiting for Mm -hmm. them. I mean, that takes what, two hours, three hours. And so um, they have airport pickups. They need people that will go arrive at the airport and just pick them up and drive them. Um, They have refugee bags that you, you know, when our church had done this, we gathered enough stuff to create one refugee bag. So a big duffel bag that's filled. They have a list of things that would just be sitting in their apartment when they get there with gift cards to Walmart and Target and, you know, maybe some clothes, maybe diapers, maybe just spoons and towels Mm -hmm. and, you know, all the things that you need when you're setting up a new apartment. And then they have cultural mentor programs, which that's a little bit more of a commitment that they would assign you with a family and um, you'd make a six month commitment to reach out to them on a weekly basis and just help them get settled. They also have a really specific ministry to Afghan women that were teachers um, because that was one of um, probably the number one, if women were working in the workforce in Afghanistan after the Taliban, a high percentage of them were in education, which is typical in lots of areas. But, um, and so they, there's a group of women arriving who that's in their background. And so they're, they're asking other teachers to be a mentor to newly arriving Afghan women who are trying to get incorporated into our education system as maybe a teacher's aide or something like that. So it's a very specific, Mm -hmm. um, opportunity. But there are a lot of things that we can do, like I said, from something so simple as making a meal to signing up for the cultural exchange mentor family. Um, And they have online trainings, of course, that you go through. And that was really helpful for me to go through their training and realize, wow, this is how the system works. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I know it is difficult to feel helpless to really step out and do something, but there are opportunities even here as these 2000 Afghans arrive in the next six months. Right. What about aid in Afghanistan? Any do you have? Has your research um, afforded you any ideas there? 
Um, no, I mean, this connection we have in Pakistan, yeah. I would trust this ministry to be able to get resources over there. Um, but there are no organizations I know of that formally are still in Afghanistan right. that you could get resources to. Mm. Um, but if somebody, if they were interested, I could share this information of the connection yeah. in Pakistan. Okay. And there is a really strong church there in Peshawar that, oh, I was going to share this also that, um, there have been a lot that were able to make it over to Peshawar. And uh, this ministry had a church, an Afghan church leader. And she was actually a woman who had just served a lot in the Afghan church. And she was married to an unbeliever. Um, and he, it was just a point of prayer constantly. Mm-hmm. And he was actually open to his wife being a believer, which is very rare, mm-hmm. you know, as a, a Muslim man. Um, but when they fled and they were able to make it over the border... This was about um, August 20th, August 25th. They made it just across before the 31st deadline. Um, the husband <clears throat> turned to Christ. And Whoa. with and it was a really powerful conversion story because he had just been, it had been like six or seven years that this ministry had been praying for them. And he his words were, he said, you know, I finally see the outworking of the Islamic belief system. Like I see it in reality and I can't deny it anymore. I can't resist Mm. this anymore. And I see this church in Pakistan and what they're doing. And I have to turn away from this false faith and I'm ready to receive Christ. And they were just so encouraged to see that. So there's a lot happening, even in the church in Pakistan has had a pretty strong church. There's even a, a province in Pakistan that has open air evangelistic campaigns because there's a lot more openness to it. So um, that is a place the church in Pakistan has a heart for the church of Afghanistan. Mm. And so finding ministries there to contribute to to can be a way. And hopefully there will be more, you know, Afghan refugees settling in Pakistan. Wow. That is so encouraging. I mean, the church, right? Yes. The church is at work. The church is is. alive and active and God is using his people and um, redeeming souls even now, rescuing people even now. Okay. Well, final question, Andy, can you tell us, and again, I know this is a big question, but maybe just give us a glimpse into your own thoughts and your own thinking. How has your worldview just been impacted by your time in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. having these relationships that are global? I mean, that's really unique. That's why I wanted you to come on the podcast, mm-hmm. because how many of us have friends in Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not, you know, right. most of us don't. Mm-hmm. So um, being intertwined with these lives and this history and their present reality, how has it changed the way you see your life here in Colorado and the way you view issues, the way you view your future? Um, what's in some, you know, give us a few ways that you've been affected right. by that, where you see, you feel like you, you see things maybe differently yeah. than yeah. the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, looking back, I was a, I was such a young mom with a one and a three-year-old when we moved over there. I was a, we were young married, you could say we'd only been married three or four years at that point. And, um, and it was a time when my worldview was being formed, when my expectations of, um, honestly, how trustworthy is God? Mm -hmm. (laughs) How much can I trust him? How reliable is he? How much of a refuge is he? Uh, and being that kind of my small, world and my small perspective kind of being cracked wide open Mm -hmm. and meeting people, just meeting the church 
in Afghanistan, the expatriate church and all these people from other countries that had flooded in and um, going to worship every week and watching, seeing the body of Christ. Like it really changed my perspective on the body of Christ and changed my perspective on the issues that we squabble over when we're kind of in a little fishbowl of what we feel like are big deals and then getting over there and realizing what the really significant issues of the faith are, um, worshiping next to, you know, somebody of a different denomination or even, you know, just a really different theological framework that they use. And when you're overseas, you're just so eager to meet anybody who believes in a Trinitarian God. (laughs) You're like, all right, I know we disagree on 14 things, but I'm with you here. And that really formed, even when we came back, I would say it drastically changed my view on how worthy God is of being trusted Mm. when we make radical steps of obedience. Um, It drastically changed my worldview on the broadness of the church and the way God's um, image is portrayed in various cultures. And I was really loyal to some of our cultural expressions of worship until God made it bigger and realized that, wow, South Koreans pray really differently Mm -hmm. than I do. Mm -hmm. And the African believers do this and the Afghan believers do that. And It helps me just love my neighbor better Mm. here that has a different perspective on something. Um, And then just living on mission too and that eternal perspective of, you know, seeing eternity and seeing the goals for eternity makes a lot of temporal things kind of just Mm. dim in comparison. I think it's also had a huge influence on our children. Um, Now, our kids were only one and three you know, and they don't remember a ton about it, but telling them stories. And even we had watched a few home videos a few weeks ago with our kids and lots of videos in Afghanistan. We watched the video of our church praying over us and I could just see their world wheels turning. Like what if God asked you to do something radical? Mm -hmm. Like what if he asked you to do something that seems crazy? Will you step out and will he take care of you? Is he enough? Even, I mean, and maybe that something radical is mentioning the name of Jesus to your neighbor mm-hmm. <laughs> in passing, giving God credit for something at school or whatever it might be, all the way to move to a war-torn country. But I think that has inspired faith in them and become part of our family culture of we obey. Like mm-hmm. God's worthy. He is a refuge. He will be a refuge, whether you're safe in your bed in Douglas County or whether you're, you know, in another nation where you're a foreigner. Um, it's changed that and it's made it easy. When you see God's faithfulness in taking radical steps of obedience, it just makes it easier to trust him. You just realize how big he is and it changes your perspective. Um, so those are some of the things. And then even having our kids be part of this process and praying over these families and these 13 young people, we have their names and their birthdays and we have them on cards and we'll pray for them and seeing the light go on in my 15 year old's eyes when, you know, she realizes, wow, she's 15 too. Her mm-hmm. life's really different than mine. Mm-hmm. And kind of getting out of our perspective has been really a powerful part of our family culture. Yeah. And I hope building a faith that they can stand on our shoulders to radically obey if God calls them to do something. So, um, Yeah, those are just some of the ways I feel like it's changed our perspective on the church, changed our perspective on God's stability that he offers us, um, and hopefully been a witness to prepare our children to obey when God Mm -hmm. asks something of them. 
Wow. Well, I could not close this podcast on a more encouraging, inspiring, truth-filled, hope-filled message. So thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I pray that God uses this episode and just stirs the hearts of anybody listening that radical obedience is worth it because our God is glorious and he is good and he will provide. Um, And I just love hearing your testimony that it's shaped your family and you hope that it's shaped your kids. And going back to the very beginning of the podcast, when you said this all was because of the way your dad's heart for missions shaped you guys. You know, that's just the generations of missions and the heart for that. Praise the Lord for his goodness. Well, thank you so much, Andy. And thank you, everyone, for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. So we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.